stories to you. Hello, my name is Rosemary Milsom and I'm the director of the Newcastle Writers' Festival. This session, Corruption, Skullduggery and Murder, was recorded at the 2022 festival and features Kate McClymont in conversation with Michael Robotham. I'm privileged today to be talking to one of the uh, most feared, respected and decorated investigative journalists in Australian history. Um, <laughs> Uh, I'm sure you know of many of uh, Kate's many exclusives. You know, she exposed the salary cap uh, for, at the Canterbury Bulldogs. I'm sorry if there's any Bulldogs fans here that don't forgive her for that. Um, obviously, Eddie O'Beard, Ian McDonald, you know. Uh, there are so many of the rich and the powerful that Kate has brought down because of their corrupt practices. Um, in May 2006, Eddie O'Beard used parliamentary privilege to say this, McClymont has been mixing with scum for so long, she no longer knows who is good and who is bad, what is real and what is made up. She has become the journalistic equivalent of a gun mole with glittering associations with the not so well to do. Paul Keating once derided Kate for spending her time sniffing bicycle seats and chasing subterranean odours. Um, will you please welcome our favourite gun mole and sniffer of bike seats, Kate McClymont. <laughs> what a fabulous introduction, really. <laughs> and, and whenever I think about Eddie Obeid saying, you know, about my um, glittering associations with the ne'er-do-well, I think, and exactly where are you now, Eddie? Yes. <laughs> I think Cooma Jail with your own son. Yes. <laughs> um, look, I, do, I obviously want to talk a lot about um, journalism and your, your professional career, but I do quickly want to touch upon your past. Um, you're a country girl. Yes. Um, your dad was a vet. For, uh, for a small time. For a small time. Well, he, he was a vet for about six weeks. Is <laughs> that all? <laughs> and then um, his older brother... Um, left the the family property so my father slipped in but um growing up as the daughter of a you know would-be vet he used to make us do the operations on the cattle because he'd say oh my fingers are too clumsy so he would make us as children sew up the intestinal walls of and this was oh, what a, da oh. a, a dairy farm yeah? yes <laughs> out, out near orange out near orange does yeah. the family still have the farm um no they've sold off half of it yeah. but no yeah. But so you grew up running around a farm. Yes. Um, then boarding school? Yes. Whereabouts? Um, at Frencham at Mittagong. At Mittagong. Still sort of country. Um. <laughs> oh, I, I remember, you know, I first came to live in Sydney when I went to university. I don't, I mean, I had crossed the Harbour Bridge because I did have relatives in Sydney, but I can remember, um, remember when you had to have a Gregory's? It's not like today you know, trying to work out how to get to Bondi Beach yeah. from University College, you know, when I was at Sydney Uni. It was just, and I've never I, left. I'm, I'm sort of, it's interesting. I mean, I'm a, I'm, I'm a country boy as well. Where are you from? I grew up in, born in Casino, grew up in Gundagai and Coffs Harbour. And when mm. I, it's funny, because Kate and I got very similar backgrounds. We both started as cadets at Fairfax. Um, I started in 1979. I think you were in the mid-80s. Uh, uh, 85. Yeah. And, but when I first came down for those job interviews to be a cadet, I'd have to catch the North Coast Mail train from Kosaba to Sydney 12 hours overnight. And when I got to, very first time I got to the Fairfax building in Jones Street there, I'd never been in a lift before by myself <laughs> and had never been in a building more than three storeys high. And I stood outside the lift waiting for someone else to get in. <laughs> because I didn't know how to work it. <laughs> but I, so I know exactly what you mean in terms of sort of get to the city and it is a completely different world. Oh, c completely different. Yes, just not having that understanding of... Um, yeah, I, I couldn't understand yeah. how there were that many wealthy people in the world, or that many people, really. You <laughs> no, <know>? exactly. <laughs> um, why, I mean, you went to university. What did you study at that city? Um, my great love in life, and still is, is literature. So I studied, I was doing arts law and I 
took a year off to do an honours degree in English literature. And then I got offered a job in a publishing company and I never finished my law degree. Okay. And I sometimes regret it, um, but mostly not. <laughs> because, you know, sometimes you think, how, how lucky can you be to stumble upon something that you absolutely adore? And I worked, um, as I said, for a short while in a publishing company and it was absolutely dire. The, the place I was working at was um, Murdoch Books. <laughs> Don't hiss. <laughs> and it was, um, I was working on an encyclopedia of Australia and New Zealand, and I was there for 18 months, and we were as far as sea. So I typed my name into the Nobel Prize winners. <laughs> in, I went ahead to N, I typed my name in, and I left. Sadly, <laughs> sadly, at least they did employ editors because <laughs> that didn't appear, that didn't in, appear. The, in the final version. Oh, no. wow. The, um, it's interesting, you know, why, why journalism? And um, look, actually, before that... Well, why uh, you? Why did you? Know, you? you know, well, with me, it's oddly enough, it's because I, I was going to do arts law at Sydney University and I got accepted and discovered that I would get no government funding because my parents already had two children at university. And so I, journalism was supposed to be this sort of potential stopgap. You know, I'd do it for a couple of years, and if I didn't like it, I'd go and study as a mature age student. But I started as a court reporter very early on, and I discovered that the law is really boring. <laughs> and as a journalist, you got to pick and choose what cases you sat in on, and you got the best, you know, you could go for the best days, whereas anyone that's spent any time in courts knows that those really important big days uh, don't come around that often. I know, and I often think about TV dramas where you've got the cross-examination and in five minutes they've demolished someone and you think, oh, my God, they've never sat through. So, Mr Robotham, you, where did you grow up? What did you do? Uh, you have come here to, uh, like, oh, yeah. and oh, it's so And then, it. yeah, then the constant ejections and debates over whether something is, mis is admissible or not. Um, I have read this story about you busking in <laughs> King's Cross. Uh, this is, so still at university, I'm assuming, and you became a busker. What instrument did you play, Kate? <laughs> <laughs> Sadly, none. So, you know, I mean, in in uh, Sydney and I think I can't sing, I can't dance, I have no talent at all, but I can talk. So my busking booth at King's Cross was questions answered 40 cents, arguments 50 cents, and verbal abuse one dollar. And I actually oh. asked I asked my wife on the way here, do you have a dollar coin? <laughs> I want to be abused. Oh, be, well, the, the, the great thing was, so, and my setup was I had a fold-up chair and I had a little table with, you know, a sort of a tablecloth and my, whoever my guest was had a milk crate and, you know, behind me I had, you know, questions answered, etc. So, first of all, you know, people would come and they'd, you know, want to have an argument. And then people from the audience would join in and you'd say, no, if, if you want to join in, 50 cents. <laughs> so people would start arguing with each other and the money would be raking in. But with the verbal abuse, the thing that I found was it was nearly always young men asking me to abuse their girlfriend. So the first thing I would do is say, what bad taste you have. How could you be dating somebody who would pay me a dollar to abuse you? So that was always. That was. Know, um, and uh, you credit that busking with helping you get uh, your first sort of job at the Sydney Morning Herald. Don't well, you? it's like so much of life, as you know, is complete serendipity. And I was was working at the publishing company. I wasn't enjoying it, and I went to a party. And I met somebody who I believe is from Newcastle. Anyway, she was saying that she just got a cadetship at the Sydney Morning Herald. And it was like a light going off. And I thought, why haven't I ever thought of that? You know, that would be great. So, of course, they'd already had that year's cadets. So the next year when it came round, I picked her brain. You know, what are they looking for? What do you say? And when I went for the interview with um, Eric Beecher, who now runs 
private media, and um, Chris Anderson, who went on to head up, um, I think, Telstra or anyway. Um, the thing, it wasn't, you know, my university degree. I'd also been, you know, freelancing at the Manly Daily and working at a, um, a uh, ra local radio station. They were more interested in my busking booth than anything else. And I just think, isn't that weird? And, you know, they said later, look, we thought, if you can do that, you, you can mm. do it. I think it sets you apart. I mean, I, look, I'm sure it was the same when you went through, but I know in 1979, from memory, there were 6,000 applicants for 12 positions mm. at Fairfax for cadetships across the newspapers. So, I mean, to get, I mean, it was incredibly competitive. I mean, Woodward and Bernstein had made journalism the sexiest profession on the planet. Suddenly, journalism courses were popping up everywhere. Um, it wasn't easy. And, and I know you had to jump through a lot of hoops, as I did, in terms of writing pieces and, and doing comprehension and general knowledge tests and all sorts of things they did to weed people down. But ultimately, when you got to those final interviews, you, anything at all that could lift you above the others was going to get you that position. But you sort of wonder now, um, I had to give a talk to, we've got five new cadets just starting at the Herald, and, you know, they are beyond impressive. You know, they've got double degrees and they've worked at, you know, the Harvard Law School magazine and they've done this, and I just sort of think, I wonder, um, looking back, whether people like me would have got jobs. Like, mm. uh, um, a person that... Uh, you know, one of my dear friends, Linton Besser, who I wrote the book on Eddie Obeid with, um, he's now at the ABC. He went off to Four Corners. But he applied five times for a cadetship at the Herald, five times. And he finally got it. And I just sort of think, you know, that yeah. perseverance. And, and he is such a fantastic Yeah, no, well I, well, I think I joined in the same cadet intake as Geraldine Brooks. And Geraldine, I think, had tried three times, got there on her third third attempt, and um, yeah, it was it's it's astonishing how difficult it was to get a job back in, in, as a journalist. Um, you mentioned that gift of talking. I mean, uh, and it's always stood you in good stead as a journalist, isn't it? You, this idea that the ability to keep someone talking. Well, I think when you ring somebody up. Um, and nowadays, when I ring up and say it's Kate McClymond, I can hear the person on the other end go, <laughs> So the very first thing I have to do, depending on who it is that I'm ringing up, is to try to say to somebody, I often say, I'm ringing up because I need your help. Or I'm ringing up because um, I'm hoping that you have some information. And it's important to make people um, feel that you are interested in what they have to say, that they are, you know, validated. It's not quite so... Mm. Not when, when they are a criminal, no, <laughs> did you true. do it? I mean, it's an <laughs> easy thing. That's kind I, of I different. understand that, like, you know, as a journalist, if you were meeting someone face-to-face -face in their house, for example, straight away you're looking around the room to look for, I don't know, a sporting trophy or some sort of photograph or a post, something where you say, oh, you've been to Fiji or, oh, you're interested, just find some other something else to talk about, something that might interest them, oh, and to win over their sort of... It's you know. funny that you should say that because um, there is a major mafia figure in Sydney that you know I, I used to always write about, and I got a call from an intermediary saying he wants to meet you in his home. I thought, oh, no. <laughs> and the intermediary, I said, look, why would I do that? And the intermediary said, it would be really worth your while. And he said, don't worry, I will be there. So I drive to the home, which is on the outskirts of Sydney. It's on a slight hill. I can remember really clearly there was a sign for um, chicken poo <laughs> at the entry to the laneway. I come in and there are the baronial gates, you know, in the middle of nowhere. And then, you know, the chink, 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 chink as the gates open. And, you know, there's a big circular driveway in, in which there's the Mercedes, there's the Beamer, there's the Mazda. So, anyway, I park and there's a, a lookout on the front door who, you know, ushers me in. And there's this small, dumpy little man in a black skivvy. 
and there's the Nick Scarly baronial table with the fake silk flowers. <laughs> it's all, and I just said, oh, what, what marvellous furniture. That's, and then, you know, what we have... What taste the, you have. What taste you have. <laughs> and, and then he, you know, pours us some coffee and some little Italian things. Oh, I said, this is so lovely. And he looks at me and he said, you know what? You are a really nice lady. I was led to believe you were the devil incarnate. <laughs> and, and anyway, the interesting thing was he wanted me there because he'd had a business falling out with Joe Tripodi. Remember Joe Tripodi? Yeah. And he wanted to give me some information about his erstwhile friend. And he has been a, a, an extremely good contact ever since. Although... <laughs> Having said that, I did fly to Griffith. Um, this was maybe four or five years ago, and I was doing an investigation into the Casella wine family down there, who've got yellow tail, you know, one of the biggest, um, you know, Labels, yeah. yes, famous uh, brands in Australia. Anyway, I had just put my suitcase on the Econo Motor Inn. The Herald never puts you up anywhere fancy, so I'd just put my suitcase on the chenille bedspread at the Econo Motor Inn, and I get a call from one of my contacts back in Sydney who says, I hear you're in Griffith. I thought, my God, I've just arrived, and they know already I am in Griffith. So, yeah, well, I mean, must admit, it's a bit like... You're like one of those sort of um, incredibly famous sort of food critics that the, the restaurants have their photographs <laughs> up in the kitchen so that the wait staff know when they're in the, in the restaurant saying, oh, my God, she's in the restaurant. You know, um, but you're like that now, isn't it? I mean, Kate McClymont's on the phone. Oh, my God. <laughs> I had, in fact, I had a terrible experience um, just after Christmas at a restaurant in Sydney. So I'm there with um, three friends... And it's quite a small little restaurant, one of our locals. And there's a couple sitting about where Michael is now. And I couldn't see the husband. I could only see the wife. Anyway, the wife is doing this and just... And I'm turning round thinking, oh, my God, what's someone done to offend that woman? I'm sitting there having my meal. And um, the woman keeps muttering, you know, rather loudly. And I said to my dining companions, I said oh, gee, someone's really done something to offend that woman. And um, the, one of my dining companions said, oh, I think I might know who that is. Look, we'll, we'll discuss it later. Okay, so they huffily get up and leave and pay their bill. And I'm still eating, I don't look up. And um, she said, that's the person that you've been writing about just lately. That's Greg Jones from the Eddie Obeid Cascade Coal. And I think only last week you suggested he was facing another stint of bankruptcy. And I thought, <laughs> oh, no. And here's me thinking some poor person has done something to them. But, you know, you never suspect that it's yourself. I mean... Have you, with, with these people, obviously, you know, Eddie Obeid under parliamentary privilege has sort of said sort of things about you. Um, have you sort of been shirt-fronted by people, you know, outside courtrooms or, I mean, who sort of let you have it in terms of what yep. they think about what you do? But before they let me have it, just one thing about mm. Eddie Obeid, you know, because I've been writing about him for so many years and I turned up to one of his sons, um, his son was facing charges for reckless and dangerous driving. He had tried to run over somebody who was crossing the road having just bought a um, Dagwood dog in Oxford Street and he tried to run him over. But anyway, so I'm there in court and he's being defended, this is Eddie Obed's son, by um, Charles Water Street, you mm -hmm. know, very prominent person, you know, based on, you know, Rake is very loosely based on him. So as we're leaving the court, Eddie Habib comes up to me and says, oh, would you like to join us for coffee? I said, oh, of course, I'd love to. <laughs> so this is the only time I've actually ever sat down and talked to him. So he then says to me, um, I would like you to write my biography. <laughs> I, will, I will pay you very handsomely, but why don't you come to Sunday lunch at Passy and we can discuss. And I said, oh, would I be able to bring my food taster? 
<laughs> and it just, honestly, he, it was just like, boom. And then he went back on to, and I'd like to employ you as my biographer. And I said, Eddie, you know, I don't deal in fiction, but I'm sure <laughs> Mr. Water Street here would be far better, a far better biographer than myself. And this is long before Cascade Coal or the, um, you know, the things that he's in jail for now. And I just thought to myself, was, I mean, that must be an attempt to bribe him. Oh, of course. Like, yeah. you know, it's an really. attempt to see what's the best way to silence her. If I paid her, you it's, know, X, X amount of money to write my biography, you know, um, she's not going to be writing bad stories about me in the newspapers. I know. You know? <laughs> sad. You know, it's, it is sad. But, but it, it is, um, I think... It's often people's relatives who are the most abusive. And I was um, in a coffee shop um, and this woman started yelling at me and her husband, who was a lawyer, his name was Michael Croke, and he went to jail at the beginning of, um, maybe it was the beginning of the pandemic because as I was covering his trial, um, everyone had to socially distance in the courtroom and the accused was allowed to give evidence by audio visual link. So the judge made me sit in the dock where, <laughs> where <laughs> the criminal, and I was thinking to myself, I actually get a great view from here. The seat is so much more comfortable <laughs> than where we have to sit. But anyway, so this guy um, gets jailed for seven years and what he was doing was he was helping, even though he's a criminal lawyer, he was helping a criminal a group to launder drug money. Anyway, so he gets sentenced and his wife comes up to me in a coffee shop and starts screaming at me that it's my fault that her husband is in jail. And I you just, sometimes you're just lost Family's for words because you think, did I? <laughs> I mean, I didn't go around with all these criminals. I wasn't caught on phone taps yeah. saying all these things. Yeah, but even every murderer has a mother. <laughs> oh, oh, that's that's a very nice line. <laughs> yeah, um, listen, just going back to where this started, you you with the Herald, um, you joined the National Times. Like I, I remember those sort of absolute glory days of the National Times when you had people like Brian Tui and, and and Wendy Bacon. I mean, writing the most remarkable sort of investigations into to corruption in, in in New South Wales. I mean, you must have been watching and experiencing and being part of that as well and learning from these people. I was there at the tail end of those glory days hmm. and um, I'd only got the job there because um, my first round at the Herald was doing bed linens and furniture. <laughs> it was in, these, they used to have a, a thing on Thursday called Style. What, and, what, what uh, tends to happen as a cadetship <laughs> is you do you do so many months of every discipline, which meant that um, the shipping round, yeah, yeah, the racing guide, you mm. know, lotteries. <laughs> um, anyway, so then my next round was I was dispatched to the Eastern Herald to do the society column, <laughs> and it was so dire that um, I started going a little bit rogue, and I remember. Um, convincing them that I should be able to go, I should go and cover a wedding at Kinkopal Rose Bay where George Freeman, big underworld figure, his, um, I think it was his wife's sister was getting married. So, and that's in fact, this is where I got my first death threat. So I, yeah, yeah, I know exactly, at covering a wedding at Kinkopal. So of course, you know, I go there and I'm, um, the, there's George Freeman and George Freedom of Freeman's huge bodyguard was there, and the, I made the joke. I well, I thought it was funny. It was probably a bit like Will Smith, really. <laughs> uh, so I wrote that um, the bridal party were wearing sequins, which was the closest fashion accessory they could get to armor plating, considering it was a George Freeman <laughs> wedding. Yeah. And I all, all I made some disparaging comment about, um, you know, it was like a scene from Minder with the bodyguard there, and I think the subheading was "I could be so good for you," which for any <laughs> of you who remember the theme song from Minder, 
And the other thing I commented upon was little Adam, this is Georgina and George's son, carrying the little cushion with the pillow on it. Well, you know, fast forward years, Adam's in jail for, you know, major drug dealing. But anyway, so I think it's funny. And then I start getting calls, this is long before mobile phone days, to my home number. I'm renting a house with other mates, so I'm not listed. They knew my number mm. and were ringing, so I finally had to go and tell work that um, I was actually um, getting threats from George Freeman for writing the social column. And the other thing that I did was um, I thought it would be fun to go to the midweek greyhound races. Mm. I thought the eastern suburbs would never, ever do this. I thought it was my duty to inform them of what it was like. And there was this huge fat man with the black hair swept back off his face who kept going back and claiming his tickets. He was doing remarkably well. And it was Rex Jackson, the Corrective oh, Services Minister oh, at the Wednesday night dogs. <laughs> yes, so uh, he was um, he was later jailed for accepting bribes to get people out of jail early. But Rex was on a blinder at the um, at the dogs. Anyway, so because of those stories, I got offered a job on the National Times. I was only there for um, a short while, mm. and it went down the gurgler. So I got a job as a researcher at Four Corners. So that was the only two years Which, in my but, career i But that was an I'd important away. time in Four Corners as well, isn't it? Because, I mean, that was... Four Corners yes. were, were, had, were doing some remarkable investigative work. I think the... <clears throat> the uh, it must have been about two weeks after I arrived, Chris Masters' The Moonlight State went to air, which was about corruption um, with Joe Bajelke-Peterson and the Queensland Parliament, and I honestly thought that I had died and gone to heaven. It was just, and I think working there was what gave me a taste for if you are given some weeks to put the time into a story, mm. it's amazing what you can come up with if you are given, you know, a bit of breathing space. Yeah. So I think that's what opened my eyes to investigative journalism. That, that, that sort of stint. I mean, going, actually, you touched on death threats. Um, you know, you have had death threats, you know, um, you, and I, I read something you, that you wrote or, or made, and I, I hate quoting people, um, but where you talked about that you, you feel a little, the word not relaxed isn't the right word, but now that your children have grown up, that you feel that, I mean, that, it, that must have been the hardest time when they were young and you were working on these stories. The fact mm. that you have young children and that these people are ruthless. I know, and especially when, um, like, I got one death threat that was actually delivered to the house. And that made me feel, like, worried that they know where you live. And, look, the reality is, is if someone wanted to kill you, honestly, it would be so easy. You know, they follow you. We're not, like, overseas where you have people looking after your interests or, um, you know, advising you. And in fact, at one stage, Fairfax had a security advisor and I actually did a little bit of sleuthing on him. And his wife, his new wife, had been married to a major criminal that I had written about. And oh. I just thought, oh my God, he's been into my house. Oh no, there's no threats here. And I thought, I mean, look, there's not to say that he was dodgy, but his wife did have a criminal conviction for dealing with the proceeds of crime, and I mean, I've written about look, it. I mean, look, you, more than anyone, knows how many journalists have died around the world that have been corruption-fighting journalists that have, um, you know, and, you know, to a degree, I guess, and maybe, I don't know, I mean, I'm trying to think, put myself in your shoes, that if you think, because you are so p prominent now, you are so well-known, that if anyone did make an attempt... Who would know, they find, Michael? Well, you, Michael's well, it, book it, it, would it, have they, so many possibilities. You know, well, <laughs> it's, it's one of those things, it's almost like, I'm not saying you know, you're too big a figure, but it becomes more problematic because the furor over if anyone made a threat on you Look, would be I enormous. Look, I just think the killing of any journalist in Australia would be very bad for business. Hmm. Like, the last thing 
people want is scrutiny on their underhand dealings. So now what worries me is that if, if something did happen to me, would it be somebody who's been harbouring a grudge for years and years, or would it be a new person that I'm right? Like, how would they know? Yeah. That's the only thing that worries me is how would they know? <laughs> um, I do. I want to talk about a whole so many things. I want to talk about in terms of defamation laws and and um, and newspapers in general, the demise of newspapers. But I mean, just quickly from a from a procedural point of view, with te new technology now, with mobile phones and and the fact that you know people can be traced so easily how has that made your job harder because i'm imagining if someone you know as much as we as journalists always you know we try to protect our our um you know our sources the mere fact that if they phone you up there's a record of that phone call if you know they if they send you an email there's there's an electronic trail i mean how do you protect a whistleblower now or, or safeguard to Look, get these tip-offs? A lot of people use um, Signal or Wicca, which are both encrypted apps that they can talk to you on and it won't leave a trail. The thing that annoys me about some of those is there's something called Signal and you can put it on a setting that the message will dissolve, um, you know, within a, a day, an hour. Some people put it on immediately and they send you this unbelievably long and you're just reading it and psh, <laughs> it's gone. And, and the thing is you can't take a photo of it. It won't let you do a screenshot. Like you have to be uh, get somebody else's phone to quickly, mm. you know, take a shot of it. But it's still, you know, mail is still the best way to go, or meeting people face to face. That's that idea, isn't it funny? I mean, we, we, I we have those sort of tropes of sort of people in a park and folded up newspaper leaving it on a park bench, but it's still one of, the, you know, that's the old spy, spy working, you know, but it's still one of the safest ways, isn't it? <laughs> Look, I went, to, um, I went to visit one of my contacts who um, is currently in what, what's called an intentional corrections order, basically house detention for money laundering. Anyway, so I go to um, meet him just below his house and he's got three mobile phones on the table and they're all those old Nokia ones. And I said, why have you got three phones? He said, oh, because they, they can't trace any of these ones. And then one of them rings and he says, Dell. I've been a very patient man, but I need that money back. And I'm sitting there and he said, yes, yes, no more excuses. And I said, oh my God, was that Wendell Saylor? And he said, how did you know? And I said, well, <laughs> there aren't many people called Dell who might have a bit of a gambling problem. So, you know, they let things slip. Yeah. You know, by mistake. But um, and this isn't being recorded, is it? <laughs> We'd better take that out in yeah, case but, Dell but, <laughs> is you know, listening. It's in, I mean, on that sort of issue of actually, I will talk about it. I mean, defamation actions, defamation laws in this country. I mean, I think I, 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 I've read that you, you reckon you spent sort of 20% of your time oh. dealing with laws. I know at one point as a journalist working in, in London, I had seven writs in seven months and half my year was spent mm. with, uh, with lawyers, not doing my job as a journalist, but simply talking to lawyers and preparing you know, for defamation actions and the like. I mean, explain to people here that perhaps don't know just how our defamation laws are so behind the times compared to well, other... Well, it's interesting, like Sydney is known as the defamation capital of the world. And we have more defamation actions in Sydney than the entire um, UK combined, I think. And it, it's because, you know, everyone should have a right to um, preserve their reputation and everyone should have a right to sue. I completely understand that. But there was a case recently involving Steve Kinane from the ABC, who's now been covering the Ukraine crisis. But he wrote this really good book on Scientology, and it was called Fair Game. And there was maybe four paragraphs in that book about the Scientologists in Australia were actually some nurses at Chelmsford Hospital were the ones that blew the whistle on the deep sleep therapy. And this was where I think something like 38 people died 
with these two rogue doctors having deep sleep therapy. So those, and there was a royal commission into this, um, you know, one of the doctors was struck off. One doctor was 86, the other 92. They brought a defamation action saying that their careers had been ruined. <laughs> so, and the trial judge said, I'm really sorry, but we have to go through this trial because this is the law. And I'm really sorry, but the findings of the Royal Commission are not admissible in this court. So 35 years later, the, the, um, the, the book publishers had to rerun a Royal Commission and at the end of it, the judge just said this, this whole action was ridiculous and the book was accurate, the Royal Commission findings were upheld again and of course they didn't have any money to pay. So they've been left out of pocket. Yeah. One of them has now died. I got a lawsuit from Morgan Ryan, the My Little Mate affair, in the, 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 he was the lawyer in the Lionel Murphy age tape scandal. He sued me for a paragraph in a book. He was 96 and said I'd ruined his earnings. Like, because the, the first thing that you have to prove in defamation is that, one, your character and, and your general standing in the community has been damaged, and two, then you have to prove that you've suffered some economic loss. But they, they come at the end of the proceedings, not at the beginning. So yeah. in the Steve Canane case, there was, these people, their reputations had already been damaged. But it just means that every story I write, I have to say to myself, okay, where are the where are the flaws? And it's often you get sued by a side character. It's often not a major character. And so now I have to think to myself, who is going to come and give evidence? Who's going to stand up in court? And about 18 months ago, I did a major investigation into um, neurosurgeon um, Charlie Teo. And, you know, it was not never suggested that he was a bad surgeon, but he makes some very interesting choices when it comes to charging people $100,000 to do an operation. Anyway, he, of course, the first thing he did was send a lawsuit. And one of the things that he was relying on was that um, I could not get one neurosurgeon to go on the record in my story. But I had... Um, the, the 14 neurosurgeons I'd spoken to said, or agreed, if I was sued, they would give evidence in court. So we were able to write back and say, <clears throat> we have 14 people who will give evidence in court. And... I didn't hear. I mean, this is, I guess this is one of the hardest things. When I look at the the sort of threats that I received, it was from, always from people like you know Robert Maxwell. I mean, they he was he was notorious to stop anyone writing about him. The moment anyone wrote something negative, he would send the lawyer's letter or he would sue, and everyone else would get too scared to follow up that story or do any extra investigation. But the hardest thing, and I think why it's so I'm so proud not just you but uh, of of the Herald was. Um, is, you know, at times they're sitting there thinking this could cost us, even if we know we're right, as you say, even if you prove your case, and if you have to go to court, that's so expensive. I mean, it's interesting, look at the Ben Robert Smith case well, at the I moment. I mean, how much is that going to cost? At least 10 million from our side. Yeah. And between million, 10 and 20 from their side. From that's their just side. like a rough figure at the moment. Yeah. And it's also, it's interesting with the, the Ben Robert Smith case that's running at the moment, because that has... Um, repercussions throughout um, the industry and it's not you know sometimes it's not whether you win and lose it's the cost of running these things that um, you know in this the Ben Robert Smith case a lot of the witnesses have been in Afghanistan you can imagine the cost of you know getting people over there to take their statements to get them to court and you just think, I mean, I just wonder whether Ben Robert Smith ever thinks to himself, why did I bring this action? Why? Because, you know, the headlines to date haven't been terribly no. 
favourable I mean, towards you say, him. And I think this, what, what this comes back to in terms of holding powerful people to account is the limited appetite because, as you say, I'm proud of the Herald because they, they, they will, you will investigate and they will publish. In most cases, not to, I know there are stories that you've written that they... They've turned around and perhaps There's said... There's still a couple on the back burner yeah, waiting. <laughs> where, where they've got to say to themselves, OK, this could see us in court for years, yeah. you know, even though we've been really confident we're right. And so often as journalists, you know, I don't think on any of the, the writs I was sued with were we ever wrong, but it's the case of the, the cost of actually proving that you were right is mm. so great the lawyers just sort of go settle. It's not worth... And look... That's the thing, too, about um, working for a major newspaper. There is no way I could do my job as a freelancer. I just couldn't. And it's interesting that um, uh, Stephen Main, who started the online website Crikey, he actually lost his house for a single sentence about Nick Bolkus, the former immigration minister. One sentence and he was just financially ruined so you know and those things do make people think twice and even the ben robert smith case because that's taking up so much money and the energy of our lawyers i think that it can be that there's less appetite to run risky stories just because at the moment look what happens when you run a story like you know ben robert smith so I think they do have repercussions. Yeah, and I go this feeds into the idea that you know our newspapers themselves, obviously, with the the demise of, of, of print journalism because of the internet and whatnot. Not only, like you mentioned very early on, when you worked on Four Corners, you discovered that absolute joy and the importance of long form investigations. You know, uh, and all of that is going to be less and less of. There has been less and less of it going forward. Look, I, I think I would disagree with you a little bit there because um, there has been a bit of a resurgence in... Look, maybe it's metropolitan um, papers. Uh, you know, I will come back to that because the thing that upsets me more than anything else is the demise of country journalism. You know, the, the local newspapers are so important in communities. You know, we don't have the resources to send somebody, you know, to a local council, but... If they're doing something wrong in that town, there's very little ability to hold people to account. But I think that the newspapers have now realised that their major investigations and their major um, stories are what bring subscribers. That's what people want. I mean, they obviously want their everyday news, but um, I think investigative journalism is really valued and, you know, people do appreciate it. I think it goes, I mean, it's in, that interesting, I, you know, when you look at the size of the newsrooms now and obviously, yeah. you know, they're shrinking, but as long as you, you say you're confident that the investigative side of it will, will be maintained then, you think... In the but look, ha having said that, when you and I started at the Herald, we had a specialised religion reporter. We had a reporter specially for the High Court... We had industrial relations reporters. We had health reporters. We had a whole team of medical reporters. And I think that's the thing that upsets you is all those specialist areas, yeah. you know, have been compressed and lost. So, okay, tell us, how do you feel the night before? Like, here you are, you spent months and months and months working on a, on a big investigation, and the night before or the moment before they press that button and it goes live or it goes, it's, it's printed. How do you feel? Sick. No, I do. I, I feel like I'm going to vomit. It's, no, it's the anxiety of, oh, my God, you know, is everything right? Have you checked that? Have you rechecked that? Have you... It's more... It's not a thrill. It's worry. Yeah. And um, I remember... Um, I remember doing a story um, some years ago, and this was on um, Michael Williamson, the union boss who grew up in Newcastle, and Craig Thompson, his lovely sidekick, who's back in a spot of bother. I wonder why. <laughs> but um, so I'd been given a tip-off that they had been given American Express cards attached to 
um, the printer of the union newsletter. It was a kickback. So instead of charging $10,000 to, you know, print the health services, you know, newsletter, they were getting like 100,000, like ridiculous. And of course, it was being funneled back via an American Express card. So I, um, I got somebody um, so at American Express to go and have a look for me. And they said, yep, they've got, yep, here are the cards. They've, they've described themselves as brothers-in-law, you know, et cetera, et cetera. I said, can you get me any documentation? They said, no, we can't. And I said, right, but you're sure. I'm reading it to you right now. So I go and tell my editors, and there's a meeting with all the lawyers, the editor, the executive editor. The executive editor is saying, this is a $10 million story, you know, and you've got no paperwork. And I said, you just have to trust me on this. You <laughs> just have to trust me. And so the editor, to her credit, said, well, I, for one, I trust you. Go for it. Wow. So I'm writing this story, this huge story about what they've been doing, and I haven't seen the evidence. So I can remember just feeling absolutely sick. My source was really good. Um, and then it wasn't till five o'clock the next day when we hadn't had a writ, I relaxed. And guess what? He went to jail. Okay. Um, it, it turned out, and it's, it's often funny, you write one story and it brings people out of the woodwork. People then, so as a result of that story, um, I got leaked a whole lot of stuff. He had actually stolen about $20 million from the union. Like, so he, on one side we had Craig Thompson putting prostitutes on his union credit card. His boss, he'd bought um, a house up at the, um, I think it was Merrill Lakes, um, but houses, done his renovations. And oh, I know how I got onto him in the first place was someone rang me up and said, you should do a story on that Michael Williamson. And I said, oh, who's he? And he said, he's the national president of the Labor Party and he's the head of the health services union. And I sort of said, oh, God, I've never heard of him. He said, the reason why you should is we're parents at the same school. And he's a union boss. He drives up in the top of the, the range Merck. He travels first class with his wife. But the ultimate sin was he outbid everyone else at the school charity auctions. <laughs> that, was, that was the sin. But you know what? That call, and it was after that I found out about the American Express cards. But it's funny how a simple call like that, that guy had no evidence whatsoever, but he thought there was something. something there. And he, he was right. And it honestly took about 25 minutes because the first thing you do is you go through corporate records and I saw that he was um, a director of a, um, I don't know, an IT company and then when I'm going through the union's annual returns, I see that IT company is paid a million dollars a year to provide so you know you're on the right track. Like, Actually, on that, on that I, mean, I mean, that by the sound of it was a relatively easy one but but secrecy in Australia, I mean, freedom of information laws and the difficulty and the cost, um, what has to change there? Oh, look, you put in an FOI, or it's now called a GIPA. A GIPA? A, a GIPA, which is a Government Information okay. Protection Act, something like that. But the thing is, you really have to know precisely what it is that you're looking for. So it's very helpful if, if a whistleblower wings, rings up and says, right, this is, you need to ask for this, this and this, and it'll be in documents here, here and here. Otherwise, if you just send in something saying, I want correspondence, what you get back is, that will cost you $25,000 because that will take us, you know, 10 people working for seven days a week to go through all our files. So, you know, you can appeal, but 
you really need to know what you're looking, what for. You're looking for, and that defeats the whole purpose. Yeah, of I mean, and this is, the, I mean, this is legitimately done because they don't want. Again, it's that idea of not having a, a national integrity commission. It is a way of, of um, a making it, it again for newspapers that are hemorrhaging money, costly. Yes. Too costly for them to actually investigate fully. And imagine a private citizen yeah. putting in an application. Like, even if you're told it's $2,500, I mean, we can do that. Um, they're not happy about it, but, you know, they'll do it. But imagine a member of the public being yeah. told, well, that'll cost you $2,500 minimum. As I say, this is this is our information, really, and I mean on that whistleblower legislation then as well. But I mean, because I'm, you must have come under pressure many, many times to reveal your sources. You know, these people that have, have blown the whistle. We've seen there's ample evidence of of when whistleblowers are exposed, just how their their lives are ruined. You know, um, but for having really just done an astonishing public service. Well, exactly, and I think we've got the case of um, David McBride at the moment and also um, Bernard Collieri. You know, Bernard Collieri was the former, um, um, what do you call it, Attorney General, or was he Attorney General or Solicitor General of the ACT? Anyway, like very prominent um, person who helped Four Corners do a story on the fact that um, during oil negotiations, in, um, in Timor, the Australian government had bugged the meeting rooms of, you know, and, and were using that for a commercial advantage. So he blew the whistle on that. He's now facing jail, yeah. and it's all being held behind closed doors. And the same with David McBride, who made allegations of um, wrongdoing while he was um, um, uh, in Afghanistan. I mean, we are a very secret state, aren't we, in terms of, or a country yeah. in terms of, you know, it doesn't make your job very easy, you know, when you have know, so I, many hurdles put up in front of you. But I think of people like you doing, you know, like doing stories from America where you can get the entire transcripts of, um, of cases, you can get the audio. The other day I applied for a 10-minute transcript of a court hearing. This is involving um, Melissa Caddick, because mm -hmm. I'm, I'm just putting the final touches on a, a, a nine-part podcast series on Melissa Caddick. But anyway, I just wanted 10 minutes of transcript, $525 later. Wow. 10 minutes, that was, it wasn't even a page long. Yeah. And you think, you know, like trying to get transcripts, trying to get anything um, is just, we just make it really hard. You know, and, and, um, and in terms of, you know, it's not going to get, I mean, it, it's great if we do get, a, a, ultimately, at some point, a National Integrity Commission. Ah. You know, um, obviously we have, you know, ICAC has been very important in, in New South Wales. Um, um, you know, can you, it's, that's not going to solve that problem in terms of the costs that the, unless they lower the cost of freedom of information uh, or except they create Except one thing is, ICAC is fantastic. You get real day um, transcripts that are publicly available to anyone at the end of each day, which I think is important for people to be able to read for themselves as to what happened. All the, um, the evidence is put up online. Like, it's really fantastic. But just going back to the, um, the National Integrity Commission, I noticed in the budget papers recently, the budget for a National Integrity Commission Zero. Zero. zero, zero, zero. And I think that, you know, sometimes we get, um, I think as reporters, we get obsessed about the personalities and, you know, people always love gotcha moments. But the real corruption is in the bureaucracies. It's things like, um, say, a defence contract. You know, the, the defence contracts are worth millions and millions of dollars. And a lot of the things that have come up at the New South Wales ICAC is corruption in, in roads, in, um, you know, a whole lot of things. And that's where you're going to find millions of dollars yeah. and it's, But it's also interesting. It's also, I think, when you look at the difference between... I think people are looking at times when they think of corruption for the Eddie Obede example of someone 
enriching themselves. And for some reason, when they see pork barrelling, or they, they look at the idea of, of using public money to help yourself get elected, that, that that's somehow not corruption. You know, that's in... And it, and it is. It's, I mean... Nothing annoys me more than pork barrelling. Even Gladys Berejiklian saying when they were caught, um, I think it was giving car parks to, you know, marginal seats that they wanted to um, to build. That, oh, everyone does it. It's fine. Oh, I'm sorry. Like, those sports roars, it just meant that people who actually deserved it, and the fact that they had committees determining who gets the money, but something like 98% went on projects that should never have been approved. And meanwhile, the people that do need these things, unless you're in a marginal seat, it's, I mean, it's terrible. And it really annoys me every time any politician says, thank you so much for electing me, and I intend to govern for all. <laughs> I just think, what load of crock. Um, we're sort of running out of time here, and we're not, because of sort of COVID restrictions, we, we're sort of not doing questions at, uh, at the sessions, but um, I've got a few supplementary quick questions before we go, and, and uh, I'm shamelessly lifting these from Stephen Colbert. Um, uh, what's the one thing that you own that you really should throw out, Kate? <laughs> oh, what? Um, God, there's so many of those. I tend to be a little bit of a hoarder. Um, I think my travel scrabble set that um, is now missing a few pieces, and I'll just tell you the quick background to that. Covering the Gordon Wood trial, mm. as Michael said, so many things are so boring. So in the lovely old courtroom the journalists have their own press box, I had the travel scrabble and we'd slide it between the journalists. <laughs> anyway, at the end of the trial, I get contacted by a juror and it's illegal for us to ask any questions of a juror. You, you can't. Um, so you can say, tell me everything that you want, that you think I should know, but I'm not allowed to ask you questions. And this juror said, there's one thing we are desperate to know what was that thing that was going <laughs> between and I had to confess it was the journalist playing Scrabble <laughs> during yes, the Gordon Wood trial. I'm very glad it wasn't the jury and, playing Scrabble. <laughs> no and every time I see that I've got it on my desk and it's lost its magnetism and it oh, is missing but it does make me, it gives me fond memories. Okay what's the most used app on your phone? Oh, Wordle? <laughs> <laughs> oh. Should I say that? I think you'd say Signal no, um, with all those, all those No, I think either Signal or also the New South Wales court list. <laughs> court list. Okay. Um, have you ever asked for anyone's autograph? No. No? Well, no one ever came to That's Orange. Right. Who was I ever going to okay, ask in Orange? Okay, last two ones before we go. The best thing about being a journalist and the worst thing about being a journalist. Look, the best thing about being a journalist is that you never know what each day is going to bring. Like, it's so much fun wondering, you know, like, just for instance, this Melissa Caddick story, you actually don't know the ending. Like, it's just fascinating watching things unfold. The worst thing about being a journalist is when that little envelope comes and it's from, you know, William McApee's solicitors and you open it and it's a, a concerns notice, as it's called. Mm. So that's the worst thing. That's the worst thing. Um, I, I can't go without asking, Melissa Caddick, alive or dead? Uh, <laughs> I think dead. Okay. You I know a lot first. of people don't, but um, <laughs> you I think first. so. Um, um, ladies and gentlemen, that's all we have time for. Will you please join me in thanking Kate McClamont? And thank you. Well done. Very nice questions. <laughs> um, Oh, thank you, everyone. Have a, have a great festival. As I said, uh, we'll wander over towards the signing room. Um, uh, thank you very much for coming along and have a great festival.
I hope you enjoyed listening to this session, which was recorded at the 2022 Festival. Save the date for our 10th event coming up from March 31 to April 2, 2023. Stories to you.